Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. I am joined by Mr. Doug Battle. Doug, I mean, you're not an Atlanta guy, but you're a Atlanta adjacent with spending a lot of time at Athens. And, you know, it's always a special situation when, you know, when the hometown team makes it to a championship. And so the, mm-hmm. the Atlanta Braves... And we talked a little bit about baseball and sort of maybe what MLB was looking for with a a Coastal World Series or a rematch of the villainous Astros versus the Los Angeles Dodgers. But they got the Atlanta Braves versus the Houston Astros coming up in the World Series. But because, you know, no good deed goes unpunished, this is a perfect opportunity for every TV network out there to invite Brian Kemp on to talk about how Atlanta was the how the All-Star game was stolen from the Atlanta area but the Braves brought it back for the World they Series. They brought a, a much more important uh set of games back and that is the World Series. But yes, Braves fans are ecstatic, man. I I know I'm not from Atlanta, but first off in Alabama where I'm from it's kind of Braves country still because there's not professional yeah. sports. And, and for whatever reason, the Braves, uh, you know, no one pulls for the Falcons, no one pulls for the Hawks, but everyone pulls for the Braves well, in Alabama. Can I make a note on that? Because I think that's, a, yeah. that's an important part of the fan, fan story, right? I mean, baseball, baseball fandom is still like the echoes of kind of historical accidents. You know, the, the St. Louis Cardinals were a, had a massive fan base because they were the southernmost baseball team and their games mm-hmm. were broadcast on, I think it was KMOX. Mm-hmm. When the when the when the Braves started in Atlanta, then suddenly this was the only major team. You know, this was the team for the southeast for the southeast region. You also had Hank Aaron, and so I think Braves country is truly extensive. Probably goes into places like Mississippi and up through the the Carolinas. Yeah, and that's my experience having lived in, in different states in the South. And so having gone to the University of Georgia, just about everyone's a Braves fan. They might as well be the Georgia Bulldog Braves. I know that G- the Georgia Bulldogs social media, I don't know if you saw this, Mike, they actually put out a graphic last week in, in that last series with the Dodgers. And it was a mixture of Braves players and Georgia players and Georgia's mascot. And it was, you know, kind of a go Braves graphic. And so they're almost an extension of all of the uh, Georgia sports as far as the university. Anyone that's a Hawks fan is also a Braves fan. Anyone that's a Falcons fan is also a Braves fan. Anyone that's a United fan is also a Braves fan. That's got to be the the biggest professional sports fandom in Atlanta, um, in Georgia, and in even the bordering states. Because you look Mississippi and Alabama there's a lot of Braves fans all over that region. Well, let me, let me even add to that. We, we, we've run a survey for a number of years and we took a, we took the last year off with, with COVID. We actually took the last two years off with COVID, but we, we, we ran a survey where we uh, actually shared uh, all the local professional teams came together and shared their mailing list. And we did this, we call it the Atlanta sports market survey. 
And something you said struck me as really on point, and it's something that like I had never really thought about, but there's an incredibly strong correlation between Braves fandom and UGA fandom. It's almost like that that is sort of the old school Atlanta fandom, that that is very much this this kind of nexus. And it makes sense, right? I mean, UGA is was always the big the bigger state school, you know, also, you know, UGA dom- graduates seem to dominate, even though Georgia Tech's down here, they seem to dominate the visual part of the Atlanta metro area in mm-hmm. terms of the decals on their trucks and on their cars. But there does seem to be something where that kind of fandom moves together. And, and you know, so, and look, there's always going to be this correlated fandom across the different sports. But when we did that survey, one of the things that was kind of striking was there was almost this OTP. I'm mean, Okay, so I apologize for that. When you live in a city, you pick up the lingo, and in the Atlanta metro area, they will talk incessantly about OTP versus ITP, which is just in the perimeter versus out of the perimeter. And so like every other city in America, the outer burbs versus the inner metropolitan core. Right. And that Braves UGA fandom nexus really exists heavily in the OTP area. And, you know, forgive me. I mean, there's always going to be fans that bleed over the line. So nothing, nothing's kind of a perfect correlation. And within ITP, this is where you saw much stronger fandom, almost this, response to this old school Atlanta fandom of the United and the Hawks mm-hmm. and a, a little bit of Georgia tech. And so it, it, it's almost like everything, you know, we talk a lot about things like rivalries. There's almost this little bit of a rivalry culture in the Atlanta Metro area of, you know, sort of the big, big established brands. I'm leaving the Falcons out because the NFL just dominates everything. But these big established brands and then kind of these upstart brands of the Hawks and the mm-hmm. United and a little bit of tech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, I know Georgia fans that are almost as excited as they would be if if the University of Georgia Bulldogs made it to the national championship in college football. I have a video of a friend. I wish I could post on our website. I don't know if it's legal to post someone else's private video, but uh, a group of friends celebrating when, when the Braves got that final out um, the other night, and it is just fandom at its purest, people jumping with like pretty much full body stomp jumps, like just out of control passion for the Atlanta Braves. Um, and so it's exciting. It's exciting to see that. And then uh, honestly, as a sports fan, sometimes it can feel like everything's scripted. I feel like Dodgers Astros would have felt so scripted, but this is like example number one million of like maybe sports aren't rigged because I don't see how the MLB necessarily benefits from this. But Braves Astros World Series. Now you know we talked about how big Braves country is. The only thing bigger than Braves country geographically is the anti Astros country. <laughs> And so I think the Braves just earned themselves quite a few fans <laughs> across the country and are the good guys to everyone not in Houston, Texas. Well, I, I think that's dead on, right? You know, Houston has had a fairly remarkable run for the last for mm-hmm. the last five years. I, I think this is their third World Series appearance. They've had seasons in there, three seasons in there where they've won more than 100 games. And, I, you know, so it's, it's interesting, like the competing – narratives and the the storytelling because you know they would love to spin this as 
almost a redemption thing of, I mean, you think about that Houston Astros run, people should be talking about them as one of these all-time great teams. But I think overwhelmingly this is still put out there as they are the villains of Major League Baseball, that they they literally stole a World Series. And maybe, you know, maybe in the sport of baseball, that's going to be something that's the most that might be the most difficult sport to overcome that kind of bad behavior because there's so much of an emphasis on tradition and the fan base is the fan base is is almost more about tradition and the history than it is about the entertainment and the spectacular. Yeah, absolutely. And so world series coming up, uh, you know, this is a rare one where I will be, I'll be watching like it's the NBA finals. I think I have enough Braves friends and, and family that, that love that team. Um, and like I said before, everyone hates the Do- I mean, not the Dodgers, the, the Astros. Um, and so it, it's pretty big storyline. Obviously, the, the bigger storyline to me personally, and this is something you and I have talked about in the past, is the Atlanta sports curse slash the Georgia sports curse. Last year, the Braves exemplified the effects of the the curse um, in their series against the Dodgers, that seven-game series where I believe they blew a 3-1 lead. This year, it feels like they got over the hump. They started to blow a 3-1 lead, but finished strong um, and now are in the World Series. The University of Georgia still has that 41-year national championship drought. The Falcons blew the twenty-eight to three. I mean, this this state, this the fans of the Braves. You will not see a more stressed group of fans than when they pan to those fans in, in a game, even when things are going well, because they know, oh no, something's going to happen. Is this where the Atlanta sports curse finally breaks, or the Braves, the team to break it? That's what I'm watching for. Yeah, I don't think people make enough of that. the The Braves. The Braves have a, actually a kind of a strange postseason history, right? The, the number yeah. of playoff appearances, I, I guess this would almost be like somehow getting ratioed on Twitter, right? The number of playoff appearances <laughs> versus the number of championships is really is really mm. absurd. And, and I, right. it does build in these expectations of, though most of the failings are pre-World Series, but it does, it, it does build in that sense of doom. And I think you're right that... Like all, I think all fans have a sense of doom, right? The the, the fan phenomena of I'm going to stop watching, I'm going to stop watching the TV, so my my team will perform well because they do better when I'm out of the room. They do well when I'm not watching, right? I think that's very common. But you know, with the the Braves' history of postseason, and I, I don't I don't even really know how to phrase this, but kind of fizzling out. I, I don't think they have a, a history of sort of terrible collapses, but not converting the postseason to making to the world series or the championship. Yeah. They've those expectations have been created and these Atlanta Braves fans are nervous, nervous. I mean, just. Yeah. And I've seen, I think it was the, the Reddit sports Twitter account was, was posting the university of Georgia is number one in college football and the Braves are in the world series. What could go wrong? (laughs) Surely this won't end in heartbreak for Georgia sports fans. Uh, Historically speaking, there's no precedent for that, but uh, to me, that's such a huge story that like, you know, you kind of touched on, isn't really being talked about. I don't know outside of the, the Georgia region, people who are very familiar, it's not like the curse of the Bambino with the Red Sox where it was 
well known and, and well covered nationwide. Um, and, and yet, the the Georgia sports curse, particularly with championships, has has been something that has haunted Georgia fans my entire life. Um, Falcons fans, as of recent, Braves fans for a very long time, ever since their last World Series and last World Series win, rather. Um, so, and even the beginning of the year for the Braves, I was hearing about the Georgia sports <coughs> curse because they lost they lost Acuna right out the gate. <coughs> I'm just doing a subtle interrupt. And, yeah, and, yeah, this, no, won't, and this won't mean much to folks outside of the Atlanta area, but what about the United, Doug? And so, yeah, for, yeah, for those, yeah. okay, so, it, and this is kind of interesting, right? Because, and again, this is getting a little local here, but every sports market is different. The Atlanta sports market truly embraced the Atlanta United, right? So, this is not like where I grew up in Chicago and mm-hmm. the Chicago, I think it's the Chicago Fire could not be more of an afterthought after, you know, the Cubs and the Bears and the Bulls. Speaking of like problematic team names, oh. that might be one. If <laughs> I don't know. But look, Just the, think of a building on fire. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but the the Atlanta United, I think they won a championship in their third in their third season. Season. Yeah. But they won all sorts of other let's call it marketing accolades just out the gate in terms of mm-hmm. Look, I, I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it on this podcast. I see more, when I'm teaching on campus, I see more Atlanta United t-shirts, more Atlanta United logos than I do any other mm-hmm. Atlanta sports team. And so to me, the Atlanta United almost, well, again, everyone's very touchy these days, but they feel like a major league championship right. within the Atlanta within the Atlanta metro area. Yeah, I guess for me, I view MLS as a minor league yeah, for which is fair. other soccer leagues. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of people do. But the interesting thing with Atlanta United, when they won that championship, and, and I do know a lot of those same Braves fans, Georgia football fans, were very excited about that. Um, I almost feel like, though, when they did, it was like, okay, they're no longer in Atlanta sports. Like, they don't count as as one of okay. these teams because because the Braves went on to not yeah. it's like the curse wasn't broken because the Braves didn't have success after that Georgia certainly did not um in the seasons at following that and so it felt like okay they didn't break the curse they must not be like one of the actual teams now if the Atlanta United had had gone up 10 to nothing in a championship game in soccer and lost 11 to 10 I think Atlanta sports fans would say okay they're officially they, this is a Georgia sports team they're part of the Georgia sports curse and they're one of us. I think the other thing that is a solid is a point that I want to make about the Braves, and, and and this is a this is a both a plus and a minus for for baseball. Is that the World Series still has some magic, right? But oh yeah, but there is a little bit of a there. There's a little bit of a struggle to get that. You know, to get that level of attention, and even like you know, when the when the Braves are in a when the Braves are in a good run, and look, the story has been building here in the in the Atlanta area. I, I think it's tougher. It's you know, it gets tougher every year to build these local stories because there's less reliance on local TV and in local newspapers. But you know, you and I both are not. It, it's obvious that we don't we don't look at a lot of baseball, right? Mm-hmm. But they got us both in, didn't they? Yeah. Right. And, and so it took them to the World Series. It took to the championship. 
but they eventually got us. You know, and that makes me and look. So look, Braves in the World Series. So locally, this is great. This is awesome. This is also really kind of a special sports time of year. The World Series, the NFL, college football. The other item that is starting out, and this reminds me of this this idea that you know that that the baseball season really hits its high point in the championship. Is Doug? I saw. And, I, and you don't know where I'm going with this. I, I can tell looking in your eyes. I yeah, saw no. an NCAA preseason college basketball ranking come out this morning. I think it was the Sporting News. And they had number one, Gonzaga. Number two, UCLA. And mm. number three, the University of Illinois. So I could not be happier in a way with my team being a top five preseason college basketball squad. Well, first off, I want to say this speaks to um, the caliber of football fandom at Illinois. The fact that you guys won a historic, <laughs> historic, what was it, nine overtime game, eight overtime? 20 to 18 game. after nine overtimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nine overtime game. And um, you're not even thinking about that. It's, it's basketball season coming up. But secondly, and, and let's not forget that at the end of last season, Mike, I believe you were kind of done with college basketball. It was like it was like me when Georgia blows it at the end of the year on any given year where I'm just like, all right, I need to, you know, that was fun while it lasted, but this is getting old. Like I'm over it. I'm I'm over it. There's more important things. There's more, you know, you wrote the article and it was Cinderella is a expletive and you were you were over college basketball. You're kind of mad at college basketball, the system as a whole. And this is just such a beautiful part of fandom is is you do that and you say you know i'm over it i'm not getting my hopes up again it is what it is we're never going to do it we're losing all of our guys this is the end and you have a long off season and the season rolls around and you are right back with that same enthusiasm just like me with georgia football every single year feeling like this is our year we could do it illinois is going all the way what is that? I love it. What is that? What is that movie? Just when I think I'm out, they suck me back in. Like one of the mobster movies, perhaps. But yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm totally back in. That's me with Georgia football too. And, so I've been there a hundred times. And you know what? And in some ways, look, I I could cur- depending on how the off season went, I could be cursing the NCAA. But because <laughs> of the way the off season worked out for Illinois in their favor. I, I sort of love the new rules at the moment, right? So uh, the big thing for Illinois basketball, look, they, they lost a high-profile transfer. Everyone loses transfers. Adam Miller, um, they, you know, they got a couple guys in. Uh, Kofi Cockburn was entered the transfer, you know, declared for the NBA draft and then entered the transfer portal, right? So it's kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, kind of like great drama if it ends up working out in your favor and he comes back. But Illinois starts the season with the – third-team uh, All-American and a first-team All-American and, you know, a, a veteran roster, at least at, the, at some of the guard spots. So, yeah, and, and this is beautiful. I'm totally sucked back in. I forgot anything I said, Doug. I don't even care what I said. I've forgotten about it. It's this goldfish kind of mentality. I am ready for this to get rolling. I have months of joy ahead of me at this point before my heart starts to break again. I love that subtle Ted Lasso reference there with the goldfish. But Mike, I gotta ask, and I'm I'm genuinely I'm not trying to rub uh, <laughs> salt in the wound. Illinois was the number one seed last year. Is that correct? 
Yes, they were, Doug. Yeah. And did they lose in the first round to 16? I'm, I'm genuinely asking. They lost in the second round to Loyola Chicago. Second round. Okay. Well, I was going to say, if they lost in the first round, you know, the last team to do that was Virginia, and the next year they did win the national championship. And so, you know, maybe it's the same storyline for, for Illinois this year. Well, it wouldn't surprise me with the talent that they have and the experience they have. Look, you know, you... You know, you 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 make the comparison to yourself as a as a Georgia football fan and how you can't really escape it. I think you're probably in a different spot than I am as an Illinois football. I mean, it's kind of interesting given that I'm 54 and you're 25 or 26. Uh, you probably know how old you are, but that that, that these things kind of go in go in cycles, right? And and you're sort of. You know, I look at you as spoiled, right? Because you've been a top mm-hmm. five team for the last, I don't know, five five years or so. Right. And so you go into every season, but you're almost a little bit, you know, you're almost in sort of a, a screwed up part of fandom, right? Where anything short of a national championship, I think is a failure at this point. It's like, oh, we lost it again. Where, you know... I, I will be overjoyed by a season that has Illinois as a top five team, and even a. Mm-hmm. I, I could totally live li, live with a deep NCAA tournament run, and that's incredibly foolish on my part because next year, unless some recruiting magic happens, Illinois is not going to be a top five team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I feel this the subtle shots at my. My fandom for Georgia sports and how spoiled I am with our 41 year championship drought. I, um, I don't think it's not a, it, it really isn't. I, I think it's just, it's just the nature of, it's just the nature of fans, you know, Duke basketball fans, Kentucky basketball fans, Alabama football fans, right? I mean, you, you guys have histories where your expectations are you gotta, you gotta win everything for it to count. Yeah. Well, I try to enjoy the process, uh, but I do think the fan base as a whole can be pretty uh, all or nothing. It's a lost year if you don't win it all. It was a waste, you know. I, I like for Georgia. For me, I'm enjoying the fact that a walk-on quarterback is getting to be QB one for the number one team in the country and go out and and steamroll SEC opponents. I love um, that. I think it's I love great. that. It's I'm, a, I'm with you 100. percent That is that's I, I an underappreciated like, story. I feel like we're watching a real life Rudy. Like I'm like, if they're gonna make a movie about this kid, um, and nobody, even Georgia fans, there's a lot of guys who are like, hey, they need to pull him. They need someone with a higher upside out there. I'm like, this is great. I love this. We're watching a, a sports movie in real time. So, well, and look, I don't think you can criticize the Georgia coaching staff's quarterback decisions at this point, given that it appears that. Jake Fromm might have a better professional career than Justin Fields going forward. I don't. Okay. I still don't. I still don't believe that. But <laughs> okay, that that is a hot take. Clumsy, clumsy segue. But you know the the NFL season, as predicted, is the story of quarterback. And, and there's so many, you know, there's so many great quarterback stories in the NFL th- this year. We've got the rookies with. And, and you know Justin Fields had it is having a very tough, very very tough, tough uh, you know entry point into the NFL. I mean, so's Trevor Lawrence and so's Zach Wilson, but Justin I mean, Fields Jones, is people really like struggling. to act like Mac Jones has has had an easy time, but uh, 
you know, it hasn't had a ton of success. It's just relative to everyone else, I guess. They they all are having rough years. No one's having that Justin Herbert year mm-hmm. from last last season. Well, and I think the thing that makes, at least for me, the thing that makes the rookie quarterback struggles so pronounced this year is that Tom Brady appears to be the best quarterback in the NFL. And maybe that's Somehow. not maybe that's not fair with uh, you know there's there's another old guy in Green Bay that you know has some arguments. There's uh, yeah. you know some young guys out west. Um, but you know Tom Brady is I, I I pulled I looked at a bunch of the stats this morning and and again, you know, it's like we we did an episode a while back about um you know comparing quarterbacks and so this we did an episode on quarterback ratings and we talked about uh the NFL passer rating and we talked about QBR which QBR is a QBR is a rating that is I think it's an ESPN proprietary rating it's something that I think gets a lot of play on the ESPN website I think it's a great mm-hmm. stat I also think it's almost too complicated to explain to people because it's Right. It, you know, I would describe it if in a technical sense as a Markov decision process kind of stat, which and I, and I say that just to, you know, indicate how inaccessible it's going to be. Um, you know, it's all about sort of the expected value of everything that the quarterback does. Uh, but, you know, other metrics that people like to look at and, you know, I don't know. I, you, you tell me, Doug, what what metric do you look at? Uh, you know, touchdowns, intercepts, interceptions, yards thrown. For me, it's usually the touchdowns to interception ratio, ratio yeah. which can favor more conservative quarterbacks. Like I know a few years back, Jameis Winston had 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions. <laughs> um, so he, he certainly didn't rate highly on that, even though his touchdown, you know, he, he probably threw the most touchdowns of anyone in the league or was up there. Well, Doug, that brings up a high profile quarterback that plays in Kansas city. Oh man. I don't want to talk about it because guess who invested their, their most, prized asset in the fantasy football draft on a quarterback whose last showing prior to the season was horrible and completely ignored that and thought he would regress to the mean only to find that he has not in fact regressed to the mean Patrick Mahomes has had a rough season and it has cost me in fantasy football well it's an interesting season because he's in some ways he's, he's thrown for a lot of yards he's thrown for a lot of touchdowns but the interceptions is the big thing and so, you know, going into the, and people forget things quickly, going into the start of the season, there was discussion, are the, are the Chiefs going to go 17-0? and 0? Is this the beginning of the Patrick Mahomes? You know, Brady's finally too old. This is truly the beginning of the Patrick Mahomes, Kansas City Chiefs yeah. dynasty. And I think right. the Chiefs are, are they 3-4? and four? Let me check that. Okay. I got it right here. The Kansas City Chiefs are three and four. And like you're saying, you know, I, I know multiple people that have, and, and look, I, I, you know, I'm very direct about my disdain for fantasy football. I've got no interest in it, but I know, I know at least two other people besides yourself who have Patrick Mahomes as their quarterbacks. And they are, um, you know, every Sunday is a, it's a it's a tweeting fest. Sorry, not a tweeting fest. A texting fest. Uh, in terms of how it's going with Patrick Mahomes, it's a it's a really yeah. shocking development. It's yeah. He's. I mean, I think he had like seven fantasy points this week, which mm. is just horrible for a quarterback. Um, it, that's like Justin Fields' numbers. So to to put your 
your number one pick in that. Um, that's rough when when you could have had pretty much any quarterback in the league, and you're seeing what some of these younger guys are doing, seeing even what Brady's doing at this age. Patrick Mahomes is struggling. You know, I haven't watched the Chiefs a whole lot. I can admit that, but going back to the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl was a perfect uh, example of how regardless of who's that quarterback, regardless of who's a receiver and running back, if you don't have an offensive line in football, you're going to struggle. And I think we're seeing that with the the rookie quarterbacks. You know, a lot of these guys get drafted to a 0-16 or a 1-15 team, and they're very talented. I think Trevor Lawrence is incredibly talented, but you put him back there, have him running for his life every play, have him taking a hit every play, it messes him up. Uh, he, he starts to rush throws, rush decision-making, and very few quarterbacks I think if you put Tom Brady in a lot of those positions he would be failing as well and so I haven't watched the Chiefs but knowing what I what I saw last year was that Mahomes was doing everything he could he just didn't have the the offensive line in front of him to protect him and enable him to have success well and your point is well taken and then I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you and then I'm gonna I'm gonna weekly disagree with you because Mm -hmm. I'm gonna make a disagreement that I don't I'm not even sure that I believe in but the data is leading me to, to to saying something fairly outrageous. But is Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence, and Justin Fields are all very high in terms of interceptions. Mm-hmm. And if we view interceptions as the metric that is most related to, let's say, poor decision-making, then it would make a lot of sense that a rookie without a lot of game time at the at the speed of the NFL game would make a lot of mistakes okay and so right. so that's a th- there's some logic to that now the the way i'm going to weakly disagree with you is well and i'm not actually disagreeing with you i'm just sort of disagreeing with the conventional wisdom about football and and i mentioned this you know i've got a, a I've got a research project that we're we're still trying to get our arms around where we've pulled data on quarterback performance as a function of the surrounding talent. And we are struggling in this project to find true effects of surrounding talent, wide receiver, uh, running backs, uh, the offensive line. And in some ways, we're we're looking at the data from every angle we can. In terms of like the draft picks that are invested, the salaries that are paid to these guys, and it's fairly shocking. The only effects we're we're finding are marginal effects of the line, and so the the data we're seeing and in, in the the story you're telling me, they might not be inconsistent if places like Jacksonville and the Chicago Bears have historically bad lines, but I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that it's the case. And so we we find ourselves, and this is the beauty of analytics and where what sort of naive people don't get is you can almost always tell multiple stories from the same same data points, right? Mm -hmm. And so is it the inexperience of these quarterbacks that's leading to the problems? Or is it just some fundamental weakness in the the teams that we're not able to pick up in the data? I, I don't know the answer, but it's... And you you used a phrase a, a couple minutes ago, a reversion to the mean. To me, that's what this season feels like. It feels mm-hmm. like we're going back to that old school world of rookie quarterbacks need to sit and learn slowly yep. before they get on the field. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's some sophomore guys starting to have success that were bad last year. I think Tua Tungavailoa had a pretty 
pretty big game. Still had some interceptions, but statistically speaking, otherwise, um, one of your favorite guys, up. Joe Burrow, stepping up. Joe Burrow stepping up. That's my guy right there. Well, of course, last year he tore his ACL. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think guys kind of come into their own a little bit later, usually. And there's the occasional Justin Herbert. Um, but even like we've talked about, Patrick Mahomes sat his first year. Who knows what he would have performed like as a rookie? Would he be another Justin Fields or would he have been a Justin Herbert? I don't know. All I know is that it did used to be common practice and kind of best practice to sit those guys for a year, let them learn the system, let them become comfortable playing that speed of game before throwing them to the wolves. Um, what we're seeing with Justin Fields, what we're seeing with all the rookie quarterbacks this year, for the most part, is that Zach Wilson is another one who's looked horrible. Um, but, you know, some guys just aren't ready or, or are not, definitely not able to have success. You know, do you, and again, sort of one of the one of the limitations of analytics is that you know very often there'll almost be this this separation of events. Like, well, this is Trevor Lawrence's first season, this is his second season, so one plus year of experience might go into the model. But this year makes me wonder about the long term psychological effects of what's mm -hmm. going on in some of these places. You know, Trevor Lawrence came into a team that was bad enough to get the first pick in the in the draft. And so maybe there are really kind of structural weaknesses on that team that they are just they're just outside of the normal range of NFL talent. And so it's right. but even then the fact that he's now lost more games in his professional one year professional career than he's lost in college and high school. What does that do to his mentality, right? Does that fundamentally, does that make him better or does that make him worse? Does that make him, is he now suddenly adding mental toughness to all the physical skills? Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little less concerned about Trevor Lawrence. Justin Fields, because of how much hoopla surrounds him and mm -hmm. how much debate and support and criticism he gets, I think this is a bad situation with what's happening at the Bears. I think he might end up almost being legitimately traumatized by, you know, being sacked nine times in a game and then four times and three interceptions. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I feel like I've seen it with quarterbacks. You go way back to, I think it was David Carr played behind a horrible line, was supposed to have all the talent in the world. And it, uh, the, the consensus was always that who knows what he could have been had he played behind a good line and had he but it just messed him up psychologically. He got where he started to feel pressure that wasn't there and he would just throw the ball, you know, without thinking about it because he was trying to escape pressure that wasn't there, it got in his head. I think more recently what I've seen in college football is is DJ Uyunglele, which I think I actually said right. Could be wrong. Um at Clemson last year showing out as a true freshman and his two games and looking like the next best thing, looking like I remember hearing a quote where you know, supposedly there were Clemson coaches that said he made Trevor Lawrence look average in practice and going out in his first game this year, playing behind a weak offensive line and just getting terrorized by arguably the best defensive line in the country. And then ever since then, it's like he has not been the player that he was last year. I start to wonder if he's another guy where it's like it's he'll start to feel pressure that isn't there. He'll start he'll throw the ball too quickly because he thinks he's going to get sacked. 
he um his decision making he i mean it's like you said he seems traumatized and i think that does happen to some quarterbacks who who play behind those lines i think we see it a lot with the early like first round number one overall type picks that are considered busts in the long term almost all of them are drafted into that kind of situation and there's a few that are able to make it out i know we've seen matt stafford have some success with the rams recently he was in a horrible situation in detroit um, i think andrew luck did a good job back in the day in indianapolis given his situation but there are a lot of guys so it's like who knows how he would have been if he wasn't traumatized if his brain weren't per- permanently affected by those experiences you hope that's not the case for Justin Fields. You hope that's not the case for Trevor Lawrence or Zach Wilson. But all of these guys are definitely in situations that could have that effect. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And, you know, the, I, I should probably be a little less lazy and actually, you know, pull some numbers. But it's, you know, kind of cumbersome. But, you know, the in the case of Fields... I, I do wonder if there is something that if you look at the measurables in terms of things like sacks and interceptions per throw, that there are some very strong warning signs that you know that that you don't historically come back from. But you know, again, I, I also don't want to be the 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 fan the the fan with a calculator who overreacts in, in terms of what he's what what they're seeing. Um, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you talk a lot about sort of the Chicago, the Georgia sports cu- curse. You could almost say there's a Chicago Bears quarterback curse. There is, there right? Is. I mean, it's like how the Browns used to be yeah. the quarterback pre pre Baker Mayfield, um, where it, there's been a number of guys. Obviously, Mitchell Trubisky, probably the most infamous example, being a number one overall pick and and performing how he did. But the Bears have had those struggles. You know, with Fields, I so we've talked endlessly, and, and so has the entire country, it seems, definitely the state of Georgia, about how Jake Fromm was played in front of him his true freshman year at Georgia, and how Kirby Smart, the head coach at Georgia, has kind of been, that's been the, the dent on his coaching resume, the fact that he let Justin Fields go for Fromm. Is it possible that he had that same Patrick Mahomes mentality where the kid's not ready for the speed of the game as a, as a rookie, as a freshman? You sit him for a year, you, you, you put him out there some, get his feet wet, get him you know comfortable, but you don't let him get traumatized mentally because you have a very capable quarterback that's capable of reaching all your team goals and you let him develop and then you, know, you let him compete that next season. And, and obviously by the time that, that time came, Justin Fields was gone. He performed very well at Ohio State, but like we've been talking about, like would he have been? Would he have been having the Chicago Bears experience as a true freshman? I'm not saying he would have. It's just interesting to think about. You know, are college coaches in a position where decision making because of the transfer portal, because of the way college football is laid out, they can't take that approach that the Chiefs took with Mahomes because they risk losing a guy to the transfer portal. Or you look at Spencer Rattler, you put him out there as a freshman, you put him out there and his, you know, he seems permanently damaged from his time, as does DJ Uyunglele at Clemson. Um, and, and so it's, it's a tough situation with those highly talented quarterbacks. You know, and I can only wonder, the, um, and I'm not going to pull the numbers, but I, I do recall that there was some, the, the field performed very well at Ohio State, but that he did struggle in many of the big games. Right. He did, and, especially and so, that first year. And so I can only, I can only wonder if there is a, uh, 
and you know maybe this maybe this comes down to his sort of fading in the in the draft right that there's some factor out there that maybe maybe there's a belief maybe there's some data that's starting to accumulate that he does not do well under pressure right and and so maybe he didn't do well in in practice competing against Jake Fromm because it was too high pressure of a situation and et cetera, et cetera. Now he's playing quarterback for a Chicago Bears franchise that sort of seems in, in disarray. I mean, you know, Fields has mm-hmm. really struggled, and I, his, his name escapes me for the second, but that coach also has taken so much heat this year that it, it feels like it's got to be a tough place to go into work every week. Yeah. You know, no one's happy about what's happening and everyone's on edge and everyone's afraid they're going to get fired. And maybe that's, yeah, and that doesn't work for Justin Fields. Yeah, it couldn't help. Yeah. You know, going into the season, the fan base, when, when Fields was drafted, was ecstatic. They felt like they got the steal of the draft. Um, they felt like he was the Chicago Bears quarterback savior, that he was going to be the one to break the curse. And I think it put the coaches in a tough spot because... They go out there week one, they trot out a veteran quarterback who they believe, probably truly believe, gives them the best chance to win the game. And if he doesn't perform like Tom Brady out there, you got the crowd booing, you got people, you know, if if you don't play, if you invest this kind of pick in a player and you don't even play him his first year while the team's struggling and they might need him, he might help, then, you know, you're probably going to get fired. So they put Fields out there, and we're getting probably what the coaches expected when they when they didn't start Fields in the first place. Um, and, and so it, there's okay, a lot well, of pressure. Doug, on Doug, I'm going to ask you to make a coaching decision now for the Chicago Bears. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's a tough. Do it's you, a catch twenty um, two. Okay, but you know, given this history, now do you put Andy Dalton back in there? No. Give Justin Fields a chance to recover, or does pulling Justin Fields now sort of break him? Even worse. I, I think it further breaks him. I think once you commit to a young quarterback like that, yeah. you can't you can't go back on it. So I think the big decision to make was whether or not he was ready and whether or not it was a good situation for him and for the team to put him out there in the first place. And that's something where, I, you know, I truly, part of me thinks the coaches probably felt like they had good reason to start Andy Dalton going into the season. And as the team lost games and as, you know, the crowd booed the starting quarterback and chanted for the backup... And I'm sure there's people on the hot seat across the board in that organization that there was a lot of pressure to get Fields on the field. And at this point, you can't pull him. I think that really messes with his confidence moving forward. And we've seen how Justin Fields responds in the past to um, not having his way, you know, uh, to be frank, at Georgia and, and going to Ohio State and some of the, the drama that was caused there. And so I don't think it's a good thing for the organization. I think at this point they're committed and they got to just roll with them until, until if the day comes where they know, okay, this guy is not the future for us at that point you can move on. But at this point, I think they're still hoping he is. Well, you know, and, and look, there's still many games left to play this season, 10 games left to play this season. It's an interesting one for the bears because you know that that assuming that things don't improve dramatically there's no sort of special turnaround the bears are probably almost now in a position where they have to fire their head coach yeah right because they've invested enough into fields they've got a you know whether it's fields fault or whether it's the the scheme or the you know however the offense has been designed they've now got to blame the head coach and find a, a guy to come in an offensive coordinator and a head coach that's going to build a system around fields. 
And, and so it's kind of great, right? The, the Nothing in this life is free. And the Bears thought they were getting this transcendent talent that just happened to, to fall. And now that organization needs to, has sort of a questionable quarterback that they are now going to have to build around because it's sort of that that's their next obvious play to fully commit and build around Justin Fields. And maybe there's nothing there. Maybe there is, maybe there's nothing. Yeah. And I, I feel like the anti Justin Fields prospect and player was uh, Daniel Jones, who, who now plays for the giants because he's one that no one was high on him in college when he was playing. And the closer it got to draft time, the more buzz you heard, you know, he went from being a second round guy to like, yeah, he might go in the first round to he, maybe he goes number one overall. Maybe they like him better than the guy go number one, or maybe, you know, this team and that team's just infatuated with him in the top 10. Um, and the fan base hated it. The, the New York giants, when Justin Fields was drafted, that fan base was booing, you know, they did not want to see him. Uh, and to be frank, he's performed since his, or since his rookie year at a much higher level than we've seen from Justin Fields so far. It just makes me wonder, what is this information that these guys are getting right leading up to the draft where Daniel Jones all of a sudden goes from a second-round pick to he could be the next Peyton Manning, and Justin Fields goes from this transcendent talent to everybody has these concerns about him. There's some information in there that, that just comes out right at draft time that seems to actually be indicative of, of something significant. Um, it's amazing to me how it, it never truly becomes public and it never um, is raised prior to, you know, those couple days leading up to the draft. Well, you know, and there's got to be those things out there, right? And, you know, there's always going to be, and this is, this is again, another kind of thing that makes doing sports analytics really almost a, a fool's game from the outside, right? You never have access to all the data that the insiders have, right? You're never going to have complete records. You know, there were a few years ago where the metric people fell in love with was the distance, I think, between the thumb and the and, and the pinky, right, for offensive linemen. You know, psychological testing, you know, Wonderlick scores are something they'll talk about once in a while. Which I think Fields scored really well on, by the uh, way. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea, but I'm just saying it's like there, there's these other kind of metrics you know, that they, probably complement just sort of like the old school look in the eye and, you yeah. know, my, my, my gut feel about this person. But, you know, like people should not dismiss those things. As human beings, we're like designed to assess our environment and, and assess the right. people. It's like, you know, the key to analytics is to combine those things. But, you know, from the outside, we lack so much data. We Our data is yeah. filtered through a media that's telling stories for ratings. Yeah, and I mean, you go back to that gut feel. Tom Brady's a guy that probably didn't impress anyone with his <laughs> his tangibles, um, and, and we've all seen the pictures and the videos of his combine. But there's something about Tom Brady that has enabled him, and it's not it has nothing to do with his his tangible abilities. You know, his those attributes. Um, he's got what it takes. He's kind of got base level there. But there's something that has allowed him to be so great at this age, and it's his leadership, and it's his, you know, it's it's the intangibles for him. And so I think that, you know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's maybe it is the shaking hands with Justin Fields and Daniel Jones and having a conversation with him over dinner that that changes and sways people the days leading up to the draft. I have no idea, but it's just a curious, yeah. curious uh, 
trend to me that we tend to see with every draft, especially with quarterbacks. Well, and look, and in some ways there's no magic in this world, right? I mean, I remember a few years ago when there was a social scientist that, actually I forget if it was an author or a social scientist, I think it was a social scientist um, that came out and really was pushing the concept of grit, right? That the, the key psychological trait in everything was grit. grit. And yeah. look, there's a real logic to that because, and everyone gets it, right? That's the a lot of people that succeed are the people that sort of put their nose down and they outwork everyone. They don't mm-hmm. give up. They they they're resilient. They're tough. They they keep going. As a fan, it's hard for us to assess grit, right? Because mm-hmm. we don't we don't watch practice. We don't see the guy playing with the injury. We don't see how much time they're 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 putting into studying film um you know you could argue that tom brady you know this sort of golden boy you know i'm tom brady in the subway commercial right where it's like there's almost like putting an aura around him there's probably a lot of grit there right 20 years in a, in a city with the same coach kind of curmudgeonly coach the fact that he looks better physically at 44 or 45 than he did at 21 suggests mm-hmm. that he's got some incredible mental toughness. But again, you know, he doesn't project that, right? He doesn't accentuate that. He doesn't he doesn't talk a lot about it. And that's the, you know, and that's the magic in all this. And I mean to me, one look, one of the more shocking things about all this is um well, you know, I'm not even gonna you know, no point in really pursuing it. But you know, when when Brady was leaving New England, it seemed like there was a lot of doubt about him, right? And those doubts have been you know, answered in the extreme. And again, you know, it's like we, we're getting so spoiled. He did that at 44, right? You know, he, yeah. He, he's, he, I think, I think what we're learning is that I know nothing about quarterbacks because I thought Brady was going to fail tremendously <laughs> uh, leaving New England. I thought that Justin Fields was, was going to be the, the guy out of this rookie class of quarterbacks. You know, I thought way back when Jacob Eason was going to be, Peyton Manning and he just got cut by the Colts <laughs> and so th- there's you know with quarterbacks there's there's more to it than what meets the fans eye there's so much more to it and I I think that you know the guys that make the big bucks in the NFL that truly earn their money are the ones that can determine which guy is going to make it and which guy isn't out of out of those quarterbacks because you know, I think a lot of people thought Fields at, at that pick was a no-brainer, and it could turn out to be. I, I kind of, I've always been a believer in that kid just because I've witnessed him in person and, and probably biased to him in that way. But you know, maybe not. Maybe that ends up being a huge bust and a, and a horrible pick. There's so many bust. I mean, there's so many busts at the, even the number one pick in the draft, let alone the middle yeah. of the first round. That yeah, that. Obviously, it's an imperfect science drafting quarterbacks, and and it's been that way forever. I mean, you know, you go, you know, maybe the most infamous draft bust of all time. You go back to the Peyton Manning uh, draft with with Ryan Leaf, Leaf, right? yeah. And and there's a and it seems like there's a high profile profile bust every every couple of years. And the interesting thing about it is the difference between the hype, the talking up of these first round QBs. And then the actual results, but by the time the actual results come in, often the hype has been forgotten. But you know, going into every NFL draft, 
It seems like there's a new Hall of Fame class. It seems like it's always going to be the Manning, Rivers, Roethlisberger class coming into the league. Yeah. 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 It's pretty funny because now I like what you said about when the performance is actually there, the hype's gone. Like, no one's been talking about Joe Burrow going into this season or going and and he's starting to show what he's made of uh two was another guy that last year they were saying you know he could be the rookie of the year this could be he could have rg3 type season i'll give you one that very related to justin fields in a way because the same program dwayne haskins i think was picked at about the same point in the in the first round by the washington football team and there was a lot of hype there were a lot of you know talking heads that were all talking about haskins and how he had fallen too far I think he's a backup for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he is. Yeah, and, as far as I know. and I don't think there's anyone sort of advocating that you know he just needs another shot, right? It's no, it's, it's and, forgotten. And he's, a, he's another one going back to Daniel Jones, and not I don't want to like portray yeah. that. I don't think Daniel Jones is is the next best quarterback in the NFL. But that said, he was a guy that was you know it was heavily scrutinized when he was picked by the New York Giants because guess who was still on the board? Dwayne Haskins, Heisman finalist player who everyone had you know pegged much higher for on every draft board for months and months leading up to the draft and everyone's looking at sports illustrate and saying you know they have these as the top players and they're taking this guy who's listed way behind haskins at the same position it made no sense to fans why would they do that well we've seen you know jones is still starting quarterback in the nfl to me has always looked like he's not very far off from where eli manning was at this point in his career um Dwayne Haskins, on the other hand, has never even looked like a professional quarterback. Mm-hmm. So it's like there is some information that's missing in the public that that somehow these organizations pick up on and, and can feel real confident making that unpopular pick, knowing yeah. that it's going to pay off in the long run. Okay, Doug, we uh, we're just about out of time here. I'll. Uh, what else is uh, where? Where do you want to take the show for the last couple of minutes here? Um. Well. I mean, you know, I'm. I'm you can do it, man. Guy. Just do it. Yeah, college football. <laughs> um, so I'll say this: I, I, and I might have touched on this in a previous episode, but I'm not counting Alabama out. I watched them this weekend. Uh, number th- team, the number three team in the country. I don't think anyone's counting them out, Doug. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but what what happens when they lose a game is yeah. it's happened year after you know in, in the past where they get kind of written off and the people start talking about is the Bama dynasty over. And this team, they're not disciplined. Um, they're not mature. They're not, when I watch them play, but I don't think people understand how talented that team is. They're very talented. Their coaching staff is ridiculous as far as the, the amount of brilliant football minds on that sideline. And it's just a matter of, I feel like, you know, being a Georgia fan and having seen it a million times, I feel like Bama puts all the pieces together at just the right time. And, you know, it, it's hard to count or, or to pick against them um at the end of the season and so it's a team that hasn't played their best football and has has struggled like for most of the game against tennessee obviously to texas a&m um didn't look great in some other games as well obviously almost lost another one to florida who who apparently isn't very good but nevertheless i'm just like until they're eliminated i will never count out alabama that said georgia florida this weekend um that's a big one for for me as a georgia fan and college football is just uh it's interesting outside of those two because to me georgia and alabama are the two teams i feel like are definitely in the hunt but it feels like the the other two spots as far as playoff is concerned 
and really potentially other three spots if Georgia were to beat Alabama um, or if Alabama were to lose to Auburn, for example, have been changing. Iowa was number two and then loses immediately. Um, you know, Ohio State at one point was in the mix and then they lost, but they're creeping back in. Oklahoma is probably the worst undefeated team in college football history. Um, was down double digits to Kansas at halftime this week, which is pretty much consistent with how they've played in first halves all season long. And so there's not that clear. It's not like last year where it's got you got Mac Jones at Alabama, Trevor Lawrence, Clemson, Justin Fields, Ohio State. Like it's it's different. Everyone's kind of in the mix. Everyone's kind of out. Cincinnati struggled for much of their game this week, by the way. That's a team that I've kind of thought was a shoe in at this point, looking at the remaining schedule. Um, maybe not playing their best football right now as well. So the college football playoff mix is, is very interesting and um, certainly keeping an eye on a lot of teams, you know, more so than, than I typically would. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, that's a kind of a great 30 second or minute long summary of the, the college football season. You know, and the only thing I'll add to that is that I think there is a little bit of potential here for some, like, I mean, every, every year the SEC has kind of this great drama since they added that championship game, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, so Georgia and Alabama facing off, and do they get two teams in or do they get one team in? That's, to me, almost like a standard storyline here. But I'm looking at some of this stuff, and, you know, Ohio State ranked ahead of undefeated Michigan and undefeated Michigan, Michigan State, State is a great kind of storyline for the Big Ten. And I, I want to throw a little bit of a love out there for the Pitt Panthers. I mean, I think they had a bad loss early in the season, but they, they look, they put the final nail in the Clemson coffin for this yep. year. And they're, I want to say they're six and one and, and probably going to win, you know, got to, you know, they're, they're going to gonna win Heisman. the ACC likely, right? People but, are starting to talk Heisman for that quarterback, by the way, because um, I watched some of that Clemson game. So, so we, I, I think the college football season is going to be a spectacular end where you're going to have this kind of this, these fairly elite teams that maybe are separated in terms of talent jockeying around, but you're going to have all sorts of drama for those last couple of those last couple of spots. And look, I think we got to be honest too, that one of the best things that can happen, the best and the worst things that can happen is people feeling like they got screwed over. And so if you somehow see a, you know, let's say, let's say Alabama beats Georgia in that championship game and Georgia and Alabama both go to the college football playoff right. and they are added with Cincinnati and a Oklahoma team. Right. And the big Ten's going to be angry. Right. Well, the big 10 still has what two undefeateds. Right. So as of now, you know, I would expect an undefeated big 10, not going and play. I mean, it, it, it always works out this year, a one loss Georgia team and a one loss Alabama team taking precedence over, let's say an undefeated Michigan state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll see, but with that said, That'll put you an know, eight-team college football playoff in place within two years, I think. Yeah, well, I've always been such a proponent of the eight-team college football playoff, but this year, when I watch the teams, there's such a disparity between you know, those first couple teams and the next batch of teams that I'm kind of like, are there eight teams that are legitimately could beat Georgia or Alabama on any given day? I don't know that there are. Um, but then, of course, we've seen with Texas A&M beating Alabama that no one is invincible, and so 
It'll be interesting to see. It'll well, be interesting to see. But I, of course, when you're the fifth team or when you're the sixth team, you're in favor of college football playoff being expanded. And when you're a top four team, you start to feel like, ah, there's not eight teams that are as good as us. So I, I can clearly see my own bias in that and recognize that. But on the flip side, you know, if it is an 18 playoff, it pretty much removes any significance from a lot of the regular season games for teams like Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, because they pretty much always finish in the top eight. Okay, I'm going to take the last word today, and I'm going to thank everyone for listening. The only thing I actually know about college football this year is that my team has actually discovered that they're more of a marathon than a <laughs> marathon runner than a sprinter. And I don't think there's a team in the country that can stay with us through eight, nine, 10, 11 overtimes. And so <laughs> go Illini. Um, and with that bit of nonsense, thanks for listening. As always, a lot more content at www.fandomanalytics.com. And next week, we change gears a little bit, and the programming is jointly the Fanalytics Podcast and the Emory Marketing Analytics Center annual conference, the podcast version. So next week, we're going to talk about Generation Z. We're going to talk about fandom in general. Uh, We ran a fairly major survey over the summer. We're going to talk about some of the results, but we're going to drill down and do a special focus into Well, essentially, what's coming next? Well, they're already at the college level, but what's coming next to pro stadiums, at least within the stands? And that's the Generation Z fan. And I'll say this. You guys don't want to miss it because there's some some surprising stuff. Uh, The following two weeks, we're going to have a discussion about influencers and influence with Amanda Russell. I think that's also – these are all can't-miss things. But, you know, she she was a great conversation. Um, her background, I don't know how to describe her background and we do it in the podcast. It's, it's an intriguing one. And then the following week, we've got a gentleman named Bill Fagan, who occupies a unique position in terms of college sports and that he is the CEO of a company that does marketing for a large number of colleges simultaneously. So again, some great insights into marketing and great insights into fandom. So Please join us next week as we start that series. Thank you.